Well, about 15 or 20 years ago, you may remember the magic eye craze that swept through our culture. At that time, it seemed like everyone and their brother had one of those magic eye books sitting on their coffee table or a poster hanging up on their wall, something that looks like a meaningless pattern at first until you stare at it cross-eyed long enough, and then suddenly a 3D image pops out in front of you. Although some people seem to have the gift of seeing the hidden picture right away, I did not. I was one of the people who had to work hard to see the 3D image. I can remember staring at those things in complete frustration while everyone else was ooing and aahing at what was hidden in the pattern that I just couldn't see. But you know, the funny thing about the magic eye puzzles is that once you actually see the hidden image, you wonder how you could have ever missed it in the first place. Because it seems so obvious and it seems so plain. You know, friends, the apocalyptic chapters in the book of Daniel are a lot like magic eye puzzles. They're perplexing, they're frustrating at first glance because the temptation is to get so caught up in the fine details that we miss the bigger picture that God wants us to understand. But once you see the big picture to which all of the fine details are pointing, these confusing chapters become a thing of beauty that you can sit back and admire and awe and wonder. Well, this morning, as we continue along in our study of the book of Daniel, we're going to examine some of the fine details of these strange visions. But from that starting point, we're going to raise our gaze to see the bigger picture God would have us to understand as we live right now in our own time and in our own generation. If you brought a Bible with you, and I hope that you did, I'd ask you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're well over halfway there now in our study of this book. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram was standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. The higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was engaged against him and struck the ram, broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. 
and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. A couple weeks ago, we observed that there, the fact that there is a very definite and obvious transition in the book of Daniel between the first six chapters and the last six chapters. Six relatively easy chapters that come to us in the form of narrative and six rather perplexing chapters that belong to the category of apocalyptic. In our sermon last time, I gave you a short introduction to the apocalyptic genre of literature. I'm not going to rehash that information this morning, but suffice it to say, we are now dealing with a form of biblical literature that is highly symbolic, that must often be interpreted on a figurative level, even though the symbols and the numbers given to us in the text point towards real historical people and events. You may recall from last time that the prophet Daniel was given a terrifying vision of four beasts representing four world empires and pointing us forward to another beast that is described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, a beast that symbolizes the spirit of Antichrist in our world. The four beasts in Daniel 7 represent four kingdoms and empires that were hostile to God. And once again, here in chapter 8, we are dealing with the subject of world empires and world history, historical kings and kingdoms that come and go with the passing of time. 
Chapter 7 gave us a broad sweep of world history, extending all the way from Babylon to Rome. But now in chapter 8, two of those world empires are going to come into laser focus. The Empire of Persia and the Empire of Greece, which are once again depicted symbolically. In verse 1 of our text this morning, we're told that this vision of the ram and goat happened in the third year of King Belshazzar, approximately two years after Daniel received the vision of the beast, probably a number of months before he interpreted that foreboding writing on the wall. When he received this vision, Daniel was physically stationed in the Babylonian captivity capital, but now he is prophetically transported some 200 miles to the east into the city of Susa, which was soon to become the capital of Persia. By the way, that is territory that exists today in the country of Iran. In the Bible, Susa was home to a couple well-known men and women who lived under the new regime. It was the home of Queen Esther, who acted courageously on behalf of her people. It was also home to Nehemiah, who was used by God to rebuild the fallen walls of Jerusalem. As far as we know, Daniel never lived in the city of Susa, but as a high official in the Babylonian government, he had probably traveled there on numerous occasions and was familiar with the setting and the geography of that city. In any case, Daniel sees himself in this vision standing beside the Ulai Canal and suddenly as he lifts his eyes, he sees a ram standing beside the water with two horns on his head, one horn being slightly higher than the other. Now a little later on in the chapter, the angel Gabriel is going to appear to Daniel and give the interpretation of these apocalyptic symbols. And so we learn in verse 20 that the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire which was soon to burst onto the scene. This kingdom, as we know, came to power during the lifetime of Daniel, and it was under the rule of the Persian kings that Daniel was cast into the lion's den. But our first encounter with the Medo-Persians came back in chapter 5, when King Belshazzar was throwing a wild party while the Persian army was standing at the gates ready to breach the city walls. That was a moment when God delivered a message with his own hand telling King Belshazzar and his guests that the kingdom was about to be taken away from them and given to another. Now, as we learned a few weeks ago, the Persian army entered the city that very night under the leadership of Darius the Mede and King Belshazzar was put to death. Very interesting to notice the chronology of these chapters to realize that by, this, by the time Daniel was summoned to interpret the writing on the wall, he had already received this vision of the ram, and because of that, Daniel knew that Babylon was on the verge of ruin. Daniel was not the least bit surprised by the Persian invasion, for God had already revealed that information to him through this vision, a ram charging in every direction, a ram that would gain supremacy over the other kingdoms and nations of the world. Now, as we know, the ram in Daniel's vision has two horns, symbolic of power and authority. The smaller one represents the Medes. The larger one represents the Persians. It was an empire that grew out of an alliance between two different people groups. Back in chapter 2, you'll remember, I hope, the same empire was pictured by the silver torso in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In chapter 7, it was pictured once again by the second beast, a bear that had one side slightly higher than the other. And the different size of the two horns and the different elevations of the bear signify the same thing. The two-sided nature of this empire, the Medes and the Persians. 
Under the leadership of King Cyrus, the Persian Empire rose to prominence near the end of Daniel's life. It became the world's superpower for the next 200 years. It was during the period of world history that the exile came to an end. It was during the Persian rule that the people were allowed to return to their own land and to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. But as we saw last time, the end of exile did not mean the end of trouble for the Jews as they continued for centuries to live under the thumb of foreign oppressors and hostile world powers, not the least of which was the Greeks. The second empire mentioned here in our text, the Greek empire, is pictured here by the symbol of the goat as we read in verse 5 and following. Here in these verses, we read about a fierce battle between the ram and the goat. And powerful as that ram was in charging here and there in conquest, the ram is suddenly overpowered by a male goat who breaks his horns and tramples him to the ground. This part of the vision takes us well beyond Daniel's lifetime to the year 334 BC when the Greek army led by Alexander defeated the Persian army in what is known as the Battle of Granicus. Alexander was in his early 20s at the time. He's now known to history as Alexander the Great, one of the finest military geniuses who has ever lived and a man who conquered most of the civilized world by the time he was 30. That's a remarkable accomplishment, especially considering how little most of us accomplish by the time we're 30. Most of us are just getting started by the time we hit 30, but Alexander's life was practically over at the age of 30, and he died suddenly at the height of his power, exactly as we read in verse 8 of this chapter. Back in chapter 2, the Greek Empire was pictured by the bronze thighs in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In chapter 7, it was pictured again by the third beast in Daniel's vision, a leopard that moves forward with incredible speed and agility. Once again, here in chapter 8, it's the speed of Greek conquest that's emphasized in the imagery as the goat moves quickly across the land without even touching the ground. Alexander's life may have been short-lived, but his legacy looms large even today, such that even the New Testament was written and inspired in the Greek language. The goat here in Daniel's vision represents the Greeks, and the horn on the goat represents King Alexander, as we're told by Gabriel later on in verse 21. What's remarkable, however, is that Daniel foresaw in this vision four horns coming up in the place of the one. And if you have ever studied ancient history, you'll know that after the untimely death of Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire was divided into four geographic regions that were under the authority of four of Alexander's generals. The Greek Empire that flourished under the rule of Alexander was fractured and weakened after his death. And this weakening of the Greeks made room for the Romans to rise to prominence a short time later. Well, we've covered now two of the major details in Daniel's vision, the symbol of the ram, the symbol of the goat. But the third and the most prominent symbol in the entire chapter comes to us in verses 9 to 14 with the emergence of the little horn. Because it's important, I want to read those verses again. Verses 9 to 14. It says, Out of one of the four horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. 
The regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. A few moments ago I mentioned to you that Alexander's kingdom was divided into four geographical territories, and now with the emergence of the little horn, the focus of the chapter narrows in onto one of those, those territories in a region of the world that we know today as Syria. Way back in the year 175 B.C., an underdog ruler named Antiochus clawed his way to the top of the heap and became the king of this part of the world and one of the heirs of Alexander's legacy. Antiochus was deeply committed to the Greek culture and worldview. He had a vision to impose that culture on all of his subjects, which at that time included the Jews living in the land of Israel. Antiochus was in continual military conflict with the Egyptians further south. In the course of his struggle with the Egyptian Ptolemies, he ended up locking horns with the Jews. First of all, deposing the high priest from his station, then a few years later, massacring 40,000 Jews at one time. In a period of three days, 40,000 were brutally killed. After the massacre, Antiochus entered into the temple in Jerusalem. He defiled the worship of God by setting up an altar to Zeus, uh, the pagan deity. He also sacrificed a pig on the altar, which is known in history as the, or known in scripture as the abomination of desolation. Antiochus established a law forbidding the Jewish people to read or even to possess a copy of the scripture. He forbade them to observe the Sabbath day. He forbade Jewish parents to circumcise their infant sons. After the massacre of 40,000, Antiochus massacred another 20,000 Jews for simply gathering to worship on the Sabbath day. Over the course of his reign, Antiochus instituted a brutal dictatorship that ultimately succeeded in shutting down temple worship for approximately three and a half years. And that period of time is most likely symbolized by the number 2300 in the text. Also notable is the fact that Antiochus took upon himself a bold title, Theos Epiphanes, which in the English language means the illustrious God. Thus Antiochus fulfills what we read in verse 11 of our text. Antiochus Epiphanes was the Adolf Hitler of his day, a bloodthirsty madman who hated God, who hated the covenant people of God. But after years of intense suffering and martyrdom and persecution, God mercifully raised up deliverers for his people, in this case a courageous warrior named Judah Maccabees, who stood up against the tyranny of the king and led a successful revolt against the regime. In 164 B.C., the Maccabees family successfully pushed Antiochus out of Jerusalem and they rededicated the temple to God over a period of eight days. It was a defining moment in Jewish history that is still commemorated and celebrated every year at at Hanukkah. 
God had mercifully de delivered his people from the hands of a bloodthirsty tyrant, but significantly, in the very year that Judah Maccabees rededicated the temple, Antiochus was suddenly and unexpectedly struck with a fatal intestinal disease that caused him to die in horrific pain and shame. Almost certainly a fulfillment of verse 25 of this chapter where we're told that this man would be broken but by no human hand. The reign of terror instigated by Antiochus foretold here in Daniel 8. And if you want to learn more about this very dark and depressing period of Jewish history, you can read the full story in the Old Testament Apocrypha and specifically in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Well, maybe at this point in the sermon, you're feeling a bit like I used to feel when I looked at those magic eye puzzles. Seeing all of the details, seeing all of the patterns on the page in front of you, but feeling a bit frustrated because you can't seem to wrap your mind around the bigger picture. You know, friends, there is a temptation in studying a, a text like this one to get so caught up in all of the little historical details that we fail to see the big picture of the text. Perhaps some of us wonder why God put a chapter like this in the Bible at all. Maybe some of you are wondering why you didn't sleep in today rather than come here and get a history lesson on the ancient Persians and Greeks. Well, you know, friends, on days like this and in Bible passages like this, it is good to be reminded of the truth of Romans 15.4, which says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. Some passages in the, that we find in the Bible might seem more interesting to us than others. Some parts of the Bible might seem more directly applicable to our daily lives than other passages. But it's good to be reminded every now and then that God has inspired every page, every chapter, every line, every word of, his, of the Bible for a very important reason and purpose. On the surface of things, Daniel 8 may seem to may appear to be little more than a history lesson cloaked under a bunch of mysterious symbols. But I want to suggest to you this morning, there is a bigger picture here in the text that God wants us to see and understand. And even if you leave this place and you don't remember a single date that I mentioned or a single thing about Cyrus and Alexander and Antiochus, there are some big picture issues in the chapter that we all need to remember, that we all need to apply to our daily lives in the here and the now. Let me say first of all that if nothing else, the chapter we are considering this morning ought to instill in your mind and your heart a great confidence in the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. I've tried my best to explain to you the prophetic symbolism of this chapter with the benefit of hindsight in history books, but we need to keep in mind that the prophet Daniel received these vision, this vision and wrote down these words hundreds of years before anyone had ever heard of Alexander the Great, before anyone had ever heard of Antiochus Epiphanes. From a prophetic standpoint, from a historical standpoint, this chapter is remarkably detailed. It is meticulously accurate, so much so that many skeptics and critics of the Bible insist that these words must have been written by an imposter after the fact. The details and the predictions here in this part of God's Word are so accurate, we are really only left with two options. Either to retreat into skepticism or else to marvel at the supernatural wisdom and revelation of our God. 
He's the God who knows everything down to the most minute detail because He's the God who knows the future. He's the God who holds the future in His hands. Christians, I can't speak to you, but studying the Old Testament Scriptures and in particular studying the book of Daniel has caused me to marvel more and more at the wisdom of God, to take comfort and encouragement in the fact that He is sovereign over all of history. Nothing in this world takes place apart from the watchful eye of our sovereign God. And so Christians, if the only thing that you take away from the sermon this morning is greater confidence in the Bible and greater confidence in the God who inspired the Bible, I think our time together today will have been well spent. We need to marvel at the accuracy of God's Word. We need to marvel at the accuracy of the One who inspired it and to worship the omniscient Father in Heaven who is actively directing the course of human history. This chapter gives us a big perspective on the authority of God's Word. Secondly, it gives us a glimpse into God's perspective on historical events. You know, I suspect that most of us, if not all of us here in this room today, have at least heard something about Alexander the Great before you walked into this room. But it wouldn't surprise me if very few of you, if any of you, have ever heard the name of Antiochus Epiphanes before I mentioned it this morning. Have a look at any history textbook. You can read all about Alexander and his mighty conquest, but search in that same book and you will be hard-pressed to find anything about Antiochus. His reign lies in relative obscurity, and for most modern historians, he is little more than a footnote under Alexander's name. But you'll notice, friends, here in in the biblical text, that the perspective of history is flipped around. Here in Daniel 8, it is Antiochus, the little horn who takes center stage in the chapter, while Alexander is largely off on the sidelines. Eleven verses of this chapter are dedicated to Antiochus Epiphanes, while only five verses are dedicated to Alexander, precisely the opposite emphasis of modern history. This teaches us, friends, something important about God's perspective on history. The fact that God is far less concerned about worldly conquest and worldly greatness than He is about how the rulers of this world treat His covenant people. This chapter reminds us that our God is greatly concerned about the plight of His people and that He will evaluate the legacy of rulers and nations on that basis. You know, friends, the Bible never promises that God will completely remove us from persecution and trouble, times of great tribulation, but we can be absolutely confident God sees what is happening in our world and the authorities in our world like Antiochus who ruthlessly persecute the church will one day stand before His judgment throne and will answer to Him. Sometimes in the midst of trouble and adversity, it can seem as though God has forgotten us, God has abandoned us, But rest assured, friends, our God is watching. Our God is taking special note of how His people in the church are being treated by the powers and the authorities of this world. The third big picture issue that comes through in these verses is the nature of evil in the world and the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in the middle of a spiritual war, friends. And here in Daniel 8, the veil of history is pushed aside for a moment, enabling us to see the supernatural forces that often lie behind evil rulers 
and evil governments in our world. This theme of spiritual warfare comes through very plainly in verses 9 to 14 as we read the description of the little horn growing great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Antiochus Epiphanes embodied the spirit of Antichrist in his generation, a man who had the audacity to refer to himself as the illustrious God, a man who did everything in his power to overthrow the true worship of God and to usurp the rightful authority of God. In the history books, we can read all about the atrocities that Antiochus committed against the Jews. But here in the book of Daniel, we are brought to see that this man's wickedness was merely a reflection of a far greater spiritual battle that constantly rages between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. As God's people on earth, we are in the middle of this invisible battle. That's why the book, the book of Ephesians tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As Christian believers, we can look at the events that happen in our world from war to racism to abortion to unjust rulings of the Supreme Court. We can know that there is more than meets the eye. Now at the cross, we know and we believe Jesus defeated Satan. He sealed Satan's fate forever. We know that Satan has been bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. But even so, the Bible warns us that in the short time he has left, our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The enemy knows that his time is short. And since he has failed in his effort to destroy the Savior, he is now venting his, his rage on the saints. A reality that we can discern in our own lives and that we can see in the world and the culture around us. Satan is a real enemy and Satan has real power. The book of Daniel helps to unmask his strategy in world history. Back in the Old Testament, Satan tried everything he could, could to attack the worship of God's temple in an effort to put an end to sacrifice, to eliminate devotion to the one true God. It's not a coincidence that Antiochus directed his most vehement opposition against the law of God and against the sacrificial system in the temple. These are tangible expressions in the Old Covenant of God's love and grace towards humanity. These are pictures of the forgiveness of sin that would later come through Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant era, Satan hated the temple. He hated the priesthood. He hated everything that God's law stood for. And so we see here in our text a human leader who is under demonic influence. And may I say that Antiochus is not the only one. He's not the first. And he certainly won't be the last. This is nothing other than the spirit of Antichrist in the world. And these little horns, like Nero back in chapter 7, like Antiochus here in chapter 8, are going to be with us until the very end of the age. You know, some people think the greatest desecration of the temple happened during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Others think that the greatest desecration of the temple happened in 70 AD when the Romans defiled the temple and then raised it to the ground. But let me tell you, friends, the greatest desecration that ever happened to the temple of God happened on Mount Calvary when the true temple of God was defiled. When Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
At the cross of Calvary, Satan foolishly thought he had outsmarted and defeated God, but he should have listened more carefully to the words that Jesus spoke earlier. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. For in the providence and the wisdom of our God, the greatest act of spiritual defilement became the greatest act of redemption and love as Jesus endured on the cross the torments of hell so that you and I would not have to go there ourselves. At Calvary, the true temple was defiled. But three days later at the resurrection, it was rebuilt and rededicated once and for all. The final sacrifice to end all other sacrifices, the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant types and shadows. Evil is real, brothers and sisters. That is part of the lesson here in this text. It is real. Evil will be with us in this world until the very end of the age. But take comfort in in knowing that evil always oversteps itself. That one day, evil will be no more. And so I repeat to you these words from Psalm 37 in closing. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and shall delight themselves in abundant peace. There's a promise that we can all stand on this morning. Amen.